Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I am the pastor here. It's good to see you guys this morning. This is sort of the um, select few who are not out of town this weekend, so I feel like this is kind of an elite club, and we're all in it. Um, Kids, this morning, I'm going to be talking about stories and their endings, so um, if you would like to while I'm talking, I invite you to think about a favorite story of yours, maybe something you have read or even a movie you've seen a bunch of times, or something maybe you have made your parents read to you a bunch of times. But think about that favorite story, and then think about the ending. And I want to invite you to draw that ending, or maybe after the service you can come tell me about the end of the story, or you might even imagine a different way that story could end. Because we're going to be thinking a lot about the way the end of the story helps us think about the rest of the story. And what got me thinking about that this week is that my family has been watching Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney+. And to be quite honest, my Star Wars knowledge is a little bit slim. Like, my family found it very amusing a few weeks ago when I had to ask them to remind me whether the Empire were the bad guys or the good guys. They are the bad guys. But uh, I have really enjoyed Obi-Wan Kenobi, and it takes place in this gap of time between episode three and episode four in sort of the official Star Wars canon movies. And even with my very slim Star Wars knowledge, I do know that in episode four, Princess Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi are alive and well. And so when I've been watching this series that takes place before that, Anytime they get into any sort of scrape, anytime something is a little bit makes me nervous, I also have a very low tolerance for scary scenes in movies, anytime anything like that happens, I can sort of tell myself it's going to be okay because I know that Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi are going to be alive in the next movie. And so knowing the ending doesn't spoil anything for me. It just lets me sort of rest in the story and experience it a little bit differently. And that's how some endings work for us. There are stories where knowing the ending doesn't ruin it. It actually just helps us enter into the story and even participate and notice things in the story in a different way. So if you think about anything that you have read over and over, maybe Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or Narnia, or any of these movies that have just more and more prequels made, like Star Wars or like the Marvel movies, knowing the ending, knowing what's coming, doesn't actually diminish our enjoyment of the story. It just helps us participate in a different way. And all of our readings today, the one from Isaiah, the one from Luke, the one from Galatians, they all focus on the end of the big story of Scripture, that story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I'm not going to talk about the Isaiah one because that's just too many threads to weave together, but I am going to focus on Galatians chapter 6 and on Luke 10 as these examples of how knowing the end of the story changes the way we participate in it. So I want to start with that gospel reading from chapter 10, or from Luke 10, and that's where Jesus is sending out the 72 disciples into all of the surrounding towns, and he's sending them to tell them, the peace of God has come near, the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, he's sending them to announce the end of the story. 
And that number 72 is almost certainly symbolic of the number of nations that Genesis 10 tells us people believed there were at this time, 72 people groups in the world. And so it's this looking to the time when God is going to bring his kingdom to all peoples, not just to the Jews, but to all peoples, to the ends of the earth. And some of the instructions that Jesus gives the disciple also points to them knowing the end of the story, knowing that the kingdom of God is coming in a new way. Because he tells them, when you go into someone's house, eat anything they put before you. It's looking to this time when the food rules that separate Jewish and Gentile people are going to come undone this time when table fellowship that crosses those dividing lines is going to be the way that the story gets told and gets lived. And there's this reference in that passage to harvest time. Verse 2 says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And harvest is this image all through the Old Testament, through the prophets, of the end of the story, this great harvest of God when all peoples would come and worship God and live in abundance like this big harvest under his justice and his peace and his reign. And in Luke 10, the disciples are sent out to do this work in the shadow of the harvest, in the shadow of the coming kingdom. They're doing it with the end of the story in mind. And so all of the instructions that Jesus gives them are shaped by this end, by this harvest. They have this mood of single-mindedness. Everything is moving in the same direction. And so he tells them to be like lambs among wolves. He tells them to go economically and physically and socially vulnerable. They have very little clothing. They have very few possessions. They have no meaningful connections with the people they're seeing. They're going to be entirely dependent on hospitality before they can eat or drink. And they're going to go and announce the kingdom everywhere they go, not just with their words, but also with their deeds. It says that they go and heal the sick. And they're going to endure rejection. Some towns won't receive them, but they're to receive it lightly, not weighed down by it, and to just keep moving because they know how this story ends. So we see these disciples sent out vulnerable, dependent, active, moving, hospitable, and secure in the world. They give us this picture of what it looks like to participate in the story of the kingdom when we know the end, when we know where it's all going. So now we'll look at Galatians 10. And this is the final chapter of Galatians, which we've been reading the last couple of weeks. And up until now, Paul has been trying to address all of these divisive issues about obeying the law, about table fellow, or about, well, also about table fellowship. That was in a chapter we didn't read. Uh, but about circumcision, just about which rules they need to follow, which rituals apply to them if they want to follow Jesus. And in that, he has tried to just break open for them the fact that they are really free in Christ. They are really deeply in this profound way, one with Christ. 
and the gift of the Holy Spirit wants to bear fruit in them. And so in this concluding chapter, Paul's going to sum it all up. He's going to point us to the end of the story, just like any good conclusion. And in verse 15, he says, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. And a new creation has been Paul's drumbeat through this whole letter. That is the end of the story that he is just single-mindedly pushing them to pay attention to. And he tells it again in this last chapter, a new creation is everything. God is remaking us. God is remaking the world. The old things have been crucified, sin and pain and scarcity and injustice and division. They are passing away. And this new creation is being unveiled. It is coming to life. And so all of these old things that they are fighting about, like circumcision and uncircumcision, they seem kind of small and insignificant in light of the end of the story. A new creation is everything. Or we could use Luke's language and say the harvest of God is everything, or the kingdom of God is everything. God is renewing the world. This is the end of the story. So the question then is, how do we participate in that story if we know the ending? How do we live? Listen to verses 8 through 10. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So again, here in Galatians, we have this image of a harvest. And again, we are told how the disciples, the Galatians, And you and me, these harvest laborers, are supposed to work. And Paul says, you can either sow to the flesh or you can sow to the spirit. And sowing, as you probably know, but since we are not an agrarian people, is just the act of putting seeds in the ground. So what does this mean? How do we do this kind of sowing? Well, Paul is returning to that language of flesh and spirit that he used in chapter 5 that we talked about last week that showed two different ways of living. Last week, we looked at Genesis 2 and how God created human flesh to be indwelled by the Spirit of God. He made flesh to be the dwelling place of a life of communion with God, this life of abundance, a life of dependence on God, and meaningful work in his creation. Just this picture of fruitfulness and creativity and abundance. And then we looked last week at that moment when humans rejected that life and decided to go it on their own. They decided they would depend on themselves and they would decide what was best. And this rejection ruptured that union of flesh and spirit. It ruptured that union of humanity and God. And these humans were sent out of the garden and sent to hard labor on dry soil. And so when Paul talks about sowing to the flesh, we can almost imagine it's like putting seeds in that dry, hard soil. 
the soil of alienation from God, the soil of being alone in the world and left to our own devices, the soil of pain and death and sin and trying to be our own gods. And then when Paul talks about sowing to the Spirit, it's like putting seeds in that fertile garden that we were made to till, this place where the harvest is always assured because it is governed by God's abundant rule. And Jesus' crucifixion has opened up the way for us to live again in that union of flesh and spirit, to bring our bodies and our lives and our little part of the world into more and more participation with the kingdom of God. Our task is just to live in light of the end of the story. And there's this beautiful interaction here in this work of sowing between our work and God's work. It's this process that the church through the ages has called sanctification, the process of becoming holy, or we could think about it as the process of becoming human, as humans were always meant to be. Flesh and spirit, these lives that are growing in dependence on God, growing into new creations. And the church through the ages has had real wisdom for us in this work of sanctification, in precisely how we sow to the Spirit. Because Paul doesn't really tell us. How do we live as though we are new creations, as though we are being made new? And the wisdom of the church is called the spiritual disciplines. And I made a slide. Thank you. Uh, Spiritual disciplines are just practical ways that we bring our flesh into alignment with God's spirit, that we participate in his kingdom, that we participate in the new creation every day. They are these ways of letting go of our own self-sufficiency, of our own self-reliance, letting go of certain habits, certain things that we are holding really tight to so that our hands are free, so that we're able to receive our life and our goodness from God. And this is a list of sort of the classic spiritual disciplines, um, but the list is actually not that important. These are things that, you know, monks and different monastic communities have found valuable through the years and people now But the disciplines themselves are not necessarily the thing that matter. There are probably disciplines on this list that will never be helpful for some of us. And there are probably disciplines that would be enormously helpful that aren't captured here. Because the disciplines only matter, they're like that act of sowing. They only matter in the extent to which they help us participate in the life of the Spirit. And so if some particular discipline seems particularly difficult for us, that's probably a little patch of ground in our life that needs some seeds put in it, that actually needs the work of sowing to the Spirit. But if a discipline is easy for us, we probably don't need it. It's not a thing that we have to do. The disciplines themselves aren't holy. They're all about the life of the Spirit that they're producing in us. And if we think back to the disciples in Luke 10, even though they are not doing spiritual disciplines, we can kind of see the spirit of the disciplines in what they're doing. Because they're called to loosen their grip on their money, on their possessions, on their security, on the results of their work. 
and then to step vulnerably into this life of dependence on God, this life where even the effectiveness of what they do is dependent on God. And it's that vulnerability and that dependence, that open-handedness that the spiritual disciplines cultivate in us that's the posture with which we go out into the world and we live out the kingdom of God. We live as though the end of the story were true. And it seems small and it seems vulnerable. It seems like lambs among wolves, but it's actually the embodiment of the kingdom. It's not weakness. So I want to encourage all of us, as disciples of Jesus, as laborers sent into the harvest, to think about exploring the spiritual disciplines. I'll put some resources in my pastoral letter this week. But just thinking about, are there some practices that I could (coughs) take on or that I could shed that would be ways of sowing to the Spirit participating in my own sanctification, things that would give me life. And then I just want to end with Paul's words in verse 9. Paul says, Let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. I wonder if the thought of these disciplines makes you feel weary. And I also wonder if the world makes you feel weary because it really has for me lately. The last few weeks, the last few months, the last few years have been incredibly wearying. And that's why the end of the story lets us rest in the story. It lets us relax into a story, not anxious about what every little twist and turn is going to mean. There's this promise that we will reap at harvest time. God knows how wearying this life is, how full of sorrows and disappointments and frustrations. And in the midst of that, he sends us out vulnerable. He sends us out as lambs. And he gives us such a small thing. He gives us seeds to sow. But those seeds will one day grow into a harvest. And we know the end of the story. We know the kingdom has come near. We know we will reap at harvest time. We know that the harvest of God is coming. We know a new creation is everything. Let me pray for us. God, would you show us how to sow to the Spirit in our small lives with our small seeds? Would you show us how you want us to participate in your story of renewing the world? Would you help us not grow weary? Amen.